teaches us how to live a spirit-controlled life. He says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glorify in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Well, here we are, week five in Philippians, and I want to share with you a painting by Caravaggio, painted in 1601, and in case you don't know what this is, it's, uh, it's the Apostle Paul. He has just, just had a vision from heaven, blinded by the light, and he's been confronted by Jesus Christ. He falls off his horse, he's on the ground, and Jesus is asking him, why, Paul, are you persecuting me? Now, realize that the Apostle Paul has just left Jerusalem, and the last thing we see Paul doing in Jerusalem is he is persecuting the church there. In fact, Stephen, the, one of the first deacons of the church, he has just been martyred. He's been stoned to death. And so here's the apostle Paul going to Damascus to do more of the same kind of work. He wants to literally destroy the church. But God has got other plans for the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul now is converted. He has surrendered his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's born again. You can imagine that there's no Christian who wants to talk to this guy. They are terrified of him. He's been going everywhere harassing and persecuting Christians. And so is he really converted? Is he really born again? This is the big question that many people had. The Christians especially, they were very suspicious. Is this just a ploy to find out who we are and where we live and what we're doing? Well, it took none other than God himself to come to the prophet Ananias. And it says in Acts 9, 15 to 16, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man, Paul, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, I want you all to stop for a moment and think about your own conversion. Think of where you were. Think of what you were, what you were doing. What brought you to the place where you surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? Think of that moment when you knew you were a sinner 
and you felt the heavy burden of your sin, your guilt and shame. I remember it well from my childhood. I knew as a young boy that I was, uh, I was a sinner. I knew for sure that my life was not right with God. And I was frankly quite terrified of dying and going to hell. But I remember that at a Calvary Temple, the Calvary Temple Boys Brigade, one of the pastors, I can't remember who it was, I can't really remember his message. All I remember is that he invited anybody who wanted to come and give their life to Jesus. So I was one of those kids that put up my hand, and I remember what it was to surrender to God. I, I, I cried like a baby. I, I felt a, a great relief that my sins were forgiven. I prayed. I asked Jesus into my life. I asked Jesus to forgive me my sin. And I knew in that moment that God forgave me. And I felt like a massive weight was lifted from my shoulders. I felt like, I felt light as air. I felt like I could fly. It, it, I remember it like it was yesterday, even though we're talking some 50 years ago. I knew in that moment that I no longer belonged to this world. I knew that I belonged to God. I knew I belonged to heaven. I knew that, that now my life would be caught up in God and doing his will. Now, I wouldn't have been able to quite articulate it like that, but definitely, looking back, I know that those were the feelings that I had. I knew that I belonged to God, and I wanted to please God. I wanted to do God's will. Now, folks, this is what happens when you're born again. You know that you belong to God, and you belong to his kingdom. You know now that you no longer live for yourself. You live for God. You do what God wants you to do. That, that's why Jesus teaches us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because that's what a Christian is. If you want to know, in a nutshell, what a Christian is, it's somebody who does God's will. This is, this is, this is our, the thing that consumes us, a desire to do God's will. Not my will, but thine be done. And of course, Jesus, Jesus is constantly seeking to know the will of the Father, and he seeks to do the will of the Father. This was the great example of Christ. We always talk about the fact that Jesus came to die for us. Well, first, he came to live for us. He came to show us how to follow God, how to obey God, how to do God's will. So understanding this, that we want to do God's will, we understand that the same goes for the Apostle Paul. As soon as he was confronted by Christ, as soon as he had that conversation with Jesus, who said, why are you persecuting me, Paul? We, knew that his, we know that his life was changed. And from that moment forward, he no longer wanted to do his will. He wanted to do God's will. And this is really what we hear Paul saying in the whole book of Philippians. It's one of my favorite books. It's, it's a book of great joy. Even though the apostle Paul is, is in prison, even though he's being guarded and actually chained, he's manacled to another soldier day and night, 24-7. He is expressing great joy in this letter. And we see it within the Apostle Paul in this letter, we see a great confidence in him, in God, and a, and a fearlessness. You know, we, we say it's easy to say that Paul is is confident in God and that he is fearless. But 
What do we know according to his life that in fact he really was fearless, that he really was trusting God? Well, I wanna share with you from 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 33, the Apostle Paul outlines for the Christians in Corinth all of the suffering that he goes through. Now, you would think that after the first little bit of suffering that maybe he would say, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm cut out for this kind of work. This really isn't for me. I think I'd like to get another job. But in fact, we find his whole life his whole life as a, as a servant of Almighty God is marked by suffering. Now, it's interesting that Christianity in North America preaches that if you become a Christian, that everything will go perfect for you. You'll never, ever have a problem, no more suffering, no more pain, and you'll have the good life. But folks, I'm going to tell you, that notion, that idea is not biblical. It doesn't come from the New Testament. That is a, a, a modern-day construct this is, this is more like the American dream and Christianity being married. You get a white picket fence and all your dreams come true and there's a pony in your backyard. But that, my friends, is not New Testament Christianity. So here's the Apostle Paul. He is fearless. His letters really declare his fearlessness and his confidence in God. But look at what he goes through. So in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 33, here's a whole list. He says he worked harder than anybody else. He was whipped so many times he can't count it. Has anybody here ever been whipped once? He's been whipped so many times he can't count it. He's been in prison more frequently than anybody. He's faced death more than anybody. He's had uh, five times he received, he received the 39 lashes. We say 39 because 40 lashes is supposed to kill you. And so what they would do is 40 lashes minus one. That would be an actual sentence a court would give, a, give that sentence. So 59 times he had 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. He says, once I was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. Once he was at night, he was at adrift at sea night and day. He says he's been on more journeys than anybody else. He's been in danger of the water, danger of robbers, danger of his countrymen, danger of the Gentiles, danger of the city, danger in the wilderness, in danger among false brethren. He says, I am suffering with weariness and toil, often sleepless, hungry, thirsty. I'm fasting, he says. I'm, I'm, I'm in the cold. I've experienced nakedness. And on top of all that, I carry with me the daily burden of all the churches. Now, you read that list and you think, well, who on earth would want to be a Christian? But the fact is, when we look at the Apostle Paul, not only does he want to be a Christian, but he wants to be a useful Christian. He wants to do God's will. He's willing to go back for more punishment. It's, it's not like anybody or anything that we've ever seen before. So how then is the Apostle Paul prepared to carry on? Well, we read in, at the end of the letter, Philippians chapter 4, and you, you know that verse. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. This is how Paul is able to carry on. This is how he's able to go back for more. This is how he's able to face what he faces. His strength and his courage and his joy is from God. But the question is, how does that come to him? Because I know some of you are sitting here today, you say, well, I don't necessarily feel that. I don't necessarily feel that kind of strength and courage and joy in the Lord. So the Apostle Paul tells us his secret. So here we are in Philippians chapter 1, 
And you've already heard the, the scripture read in the video uh, that we just heard. And let's take a look at this verse, these first few verses. Verse 18b, Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice. Can we just stop there for a moment? <laughs> All the things that Paul has gone through, and he's talking about rejoicing. If, you don't, if, if, if there's no other evidence, this is evidence enough to prove to you that what Paul is doing is a supernatural work with supernatural enabling. Nobody can go through all of this suffering and still say, and yet I will rejoice. He's either a crazy man or he's got some secret understanding of the work of God in his life. And that's obviously what he has. He says, I will rejoice. Why? Because he knows of God's special help, his supernatural help. He's in prison, possibly facing death, and yet he is rejoicing. Well, he tells us why he's rejoicing. And he says in verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this difficulty he's going through will turn out for my deliverance. Let's look at that first, uh, first phrase. He says, for I know that through your prayers. We wonder, does prayer really work? The Apostle Paul wants every Christian to understand that, in fact, prayer really does work and that prayer is necessary and that, and that spending time in prayer with others is critical for the furthering of God's work. This is why we have prayer on Tuesday nights. This is why we continue to meet together, even though it's been uncomfortable at times meeting on Zoom we continue to do this because we know how critical prayer is. So Satan may be at work in the, in the background trying to shut the church down, and in, in some cases, maybe he's been successful, but thank God, we've, we, we've come through this stronger than ever. Would you say amen to that? We've, we've come together. We're still coming together, and we're praying together, and we're experiencing the power of God at work in our church and in our lives. What Paul is saying, it's your prayers that have enabled me to carry on. And this is why I'm rejoicing, because I'm not going through it alone. I've got you, babe. I've got you, Philippians. You're praying for me. You're holding me up in prayer on a regular basis. And by the way, the Philippians were, were kind of maybe discouraged and maybe thinking that the Apostle Paul wasn't going to be able to pull through and he's going through so much difficulty and so much struggle. Is he going to actually be able to do this? And Paul wants them to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, he is stronger than ever. And he says it's because of your prayers. Paul wants the Philippians to know that their prayers are critical for his strength and for his courage. By the way, this is why we meet to pray for Burundi. Let me just quickly tell you of an answer to prayer. One of the things we've been praying for now for the last about year, maybe, is we've been praying for Gitega. Now, Gitega, in case you don't know, is the new capital city of Burundi. Bujumbura was the capital city for many years. I think it still might be. I don't know if it's in transition. I'm not exactly sure where it is, but we know that Gitega is going to be the new capital city. Well, when we heard this, we felt, we felt that the Spirit of God was prompting us that we need to begin to prepare for, for the planting of a church in Gitega. Now, here's the thing. As God is laying that on our hearts, we are, we are right in the process of planting a church in Moravia. 
And so some are saying, well, don't you think we should just take care of one thing at a time here? And I'm saying, well, we need to begin praying about this because we did pray for quite some time for Moravia. And then suddenly we were able to have the money to buy the property to, to build a church there. And then the next thing you know, somebody came forward and said, I want to pay to build the whole church in Moravia. And so we, in the meantime, we, we start to pray for Gatega. This has got to be our next plant. And here's what happened. There was a group of Christians that were, maybe just a few people from Gatega, that were actually in Moravia, and they were there to witness the baptism of new converts in our new church plant. And they heard about the fact that we, were, that we had encouraged Young couples that were not married to, to get married. If you're going to be a Christian, you can't be living common law. You need to get married. You can't, you can't be sleeping around. You've got to go to the woman that you have got made babies with, and you've got to marry her, and you've got to become a stable family unit. It's in, so the next thing you know, we've got, we've got nine couples lined up to get married, and that's what happened. We, you show, we, we showed you some of the pictures, and apparently there's going to be another marriage ceremony with another nine couples or so. It's absolutely mind-boggling, the power of the gospel at work in a community. It transforms, it transforms a community, it transforms a country. Well, very long story, just long. This, these people from Gatega are there, and they're seeing all this, and they want to know... How can we be part of Cross Church? We are thrilled about what's happening, and we want to see the same thing happen in our city. And Delson asked, well, what city are you from? They said, we're from Gatega. Instantly, we knew that this was the beginning of an answer to prayer. And so, folks, we began praying for Gatega over a year ago, and now we have, we have our core of believers there, and we are now preparing to find a place for them to rent and a place for them to be established. We want to eventually buy property and build a church there as well. I tell you all this to say that this is the power of prayer. We knew the moment that these people from Gatega said to us, how can we be part of what we're doing, of what you're doing? We knew that this was God's will because we had already been praying for this. We had already been seeking God's will regarding Gatega. And so now we have the, the next church plant in Gatega. You know, one of the things that Gloria and I discovered is every time we go on vacation, we always spend lots and lots and lots of hours together in prayer, praying for the church, praying for many of you by name, praying for your children, praying for your grandchildren. Uh, we pray for our family and so on and so forth. And one of the things that we discovered is that God always comes through, he always answers prayer, we always see answers to prayer. Folks, this is what the Apostle Paul is reminding the Philippians. Your prayer makes a difference, things change, things, things become better because you have prayed. Now, I gotta just say this, because some people don't understand what prayer is. Some people think that when we go to prayer, we give God ideas, things that he hadn't thought of before. How many know that God is, is omniscient? He, he knows everything. You, you, when you go to prayer, you don't give God any new ideas. Everybody knows that, right? So what's the po point of praying? Well, when you and I go into prayer, what happens is that we discover and learn God's will, and what happens is that your will 
becomes aligned with the will of God. So you're ready to go this way, and you want to tell God what to do. God, this is what I want you to do. You give God your shopping list. God, so God, get busy and do what I'm telling you to do. No, 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 no. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is saying, God, what do you want? Your will be done. Show us your will. Show us. Impress upon us where you want us to go, what you want us to do next. And that's really what happened with Gatega. And this is what's happened with this church. Time and time again, it's because we spent time praying and asking God for direction. Do you know, this is what happened when, before we bought this church building. I, I, spent, uh, I spent 40 days fasting meals, asking God for direction to show us what to do. And then after that time, I knew that this is what God wanted us to do. He wanted us to buy this property and... And we saw God answer that prayer. I'll tell you more about that in just a moment. But understand, folks, you need to pray for your children. You need to pray for them every day. You need to pray for your marriage. You need to pray for your marriage every day. You need to pray for your workmates. Pray for your boss. Some of you don't like your boss, and you're praying that God will get rid of him. (laughs) Maybe what you need to do is pray, God, how can I best serve my boss? What can I do for my boss? How, How can I bless him? Or maybe it's your kids or your neighbors. You need to get your will aligned with the will of God and the mind of God. Here's what we do know about God. We know that God loves the world. In fact, the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his son for your boss, for your neighbor, for your children, for your spouse, for your extended family, and the list goes on. Get your will aligned with God's will. And that happens, of course, in prayer. Now, I want you to see something else here. It says, for I know that through your prayers, and look at this, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That word help in Greek, it's the word uh, epichoria, which means supply. And if you have a King James Bible, it'll talk about the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That actually, I think, is, is still the best translation of that passage. And what Paul is saying here, he says, I know that through your prayers and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ through your prayer, that what? That that the things he's going through will actually turn out for his deliverance. Now, stop and let the Spirit of God speak to you here right now. Because Look, at you and I, when we became Christians, we received the Holy Spirit. In fact, it says in uh, the first chapters of Ephesians that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, and that's, that is our guarantee that we will be saved. That's our guarantee that we belong to God, that we will go and be with God for eternity. But we're not talking about that, that coming of the Holy Spirit upon the believer at salvation. We're talking about something extra, something more. Uh, We're talking about uh, an extra, uh, if you will, an extra anointing, an extra outpouring, an extra filling of the Holy Spirit. Folks, I'm going to tell you, before I come up here to preach on Sunday, that's exactly what I'm praying. I know I have the Holy Spirit dwelling in me so that when I die, I go to heaven. But when I come up to preach, when I come up to speak the word of God to you, I'm saying, God, I need a fresh filling of your spirit. I need you to supply me with the spirit of Jesus so that I will speak God's word to your people. And when between the first and second service, the elders come to my office and they're praying the same thing. God, help our pastor. Help our pastor 
do exactly what you want him to do through the supply or the help of the spirit of Jesus. And we see when you read through the book of, of Acts, what do we see over and over and over again? We see that the apostles are, it says that they're filled with the spirit and then they, they do whatever they have to do. Peter, for instance, Peter is called to speak to, this, to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. He stands before them. Now, remember this. He's, a, he's an uneducated fisherman. In fact, why Jesus would call these fishermen to be his disciples is beyond me. I believe it's so that he is completely the one glorified. No one can take any glory. So here's Peter, the uneducated fisherman, who's going to stand before the Sanhedrin, and Caiaphas, the high priest, these are the most educated people in, in the land, the most educated people in the country. It would be like, it'd be like a, a, a fisherman being called to address all the professors and doctors at Oxford University. He stands before them, and the Bible says what? He's full of the Holy Spirit, so that when he speaks, they all cross their, their, their arms, and they look at each other, and they think, who is this? How come we've never heard of him? This is just a fisherman. How can he speak so elegantly? How can he speak so, so, so beautifully? And how does he know the scripture so well? Well, I'll tell you, because he's full of the Holy Spirit. Folks, this is exactly what happens to everybody who is a Christian and says, God, here am I, use me. God, fill me afresh. Grant to me what, what we Pentecostals call the anointing. Let your anointing rest upon me that I may do your work. That's exactly what happens to Peter as he pe preaches to the Sanhedrin. And the same thing happens to, to Stephen. Remember Stephen, the one that, that the apostle Paul, just before he had the, the blinding light experience, he he. he he supervises the stoning of this beautiful Christian man, this leader of the church. And the Bible says that as Stephen is being stoned to death, he's not fearful, he's not, cower, he's, not, he's not cowering in the corner, he's not begging, oh, no, no, don't do it. It says that he looked into heaven, and he's got a serenity, a peace about him. How can this be? It's supernatural. Well, the Bible says that Stephen was, again, full of the Holy Spirit. This is what happens, my friends. For those of us who understand what it means to follow Christ, this is what happens when we go through our times of trials and testing. This is what happens when we are being called on to do things that are beyond our ability. We receive a, an anointing, an enabling you might want to call it grace, but it's an enabling of the Spirit. And so Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, is stoned to death. I believe that it was at that moment that God began to work in Paul's life. I believe that he looked at that and said, how on earth can this be? I believe that it's in that moment he's reflecting on that, and his heart now has been softened and opened then to hear Jesus Christ himself confront him. That's the power of your prayer. You're praying, God, supply to our pastor a special infilling of the Holy Spirit. 
Fill them afresh, O oh God. And I pray that for you when you go to face your, your, your work, face the struggles that you're going through. God, fill them with your spirit. Enable him, strengthen him. You read throughout the book of Acts, every time the apostle Paul does any miracles, anytime he's casting out demons, and anytime he's doing anything, it says what? It says he was full of the spirit. This is, this is not just for New Testament days, my friends. This is for today. We still need this. We still need a special filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to see that at the core of that word, uh, epochoria, is a word, koriedno. And this word is the word from which we get the word choreography. Beautiful. If you want, you can speak about the choreography of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit working in ways that we don't know anything about, but he's working behind the scenes because we've been busy praying, and God orchestrates things so that we're able to see God's will accomplished. That's really what happened with this building. When we talked to the real estate agent about what we wanted to offer to Safeway of Canada, he laughed at us, and then he got angry at us. You're out of your mind. What was our offer? Well, our offer was... Well, we have 150000 from our buildings on Elgin Avenue, and we figure if you give us a donation of 400000 your 400000 and our 150000 will cover the asking price of this old building. Now, the agent got angry at me because he thought we were messing around and playing games and that we weren't doing our due diligence, and I, I can't remember what all legal, legal words and phrases he came up with. But here's what he didn't know is the Holy Spirit had choreographed this thing behind the scenes in ways that nobody could have imagined. Because at that time, Marilyn Wedlake started attending our church. And Marilyn Wedlake, in case you don't know it, was actually the assistant to the lawyer of Safeway of Canada. And so we went right around the real estate agent. We went right to the top. And Marilyn called them and, and knew them by name. She worked them. They were colleagues and she told the people what they, what they wanted to do. And God, in his mercy and grace, the choreography of the Spirit, they said, yes, yes, we'll give you a donation of 400000 and we'll take your 150000 so you can buy our building from us. You stand back, and you look at that, and you say, this is a miracle. This is a miracle. I call it the choreography of the Spirit, the supply of the Holy Spirit. Folks, this is how God works. Right now, Dennis Weeb is in, in Burundi. Now, Dennis Weeb, I, I'm hoping I'm getting the story right. It's, I, I'm, it's close enough. But he felt, he, he had met some Burundian people at the last church he attended. And he felt that God wanted him to go to Burundi to establish an orphanage because he heard about the, the very dire situation in Burundi. Now, I got to tell you, before I met Dennis, I had no idea that there was a place called Burundi on the planet. I had no idea that it was the poorest country in the world. But God had laid it on his heart. And so he got on an airplane and he, he actually got some names from people here in Winnipeg some contacts of people in Burundi. When he got there, he discovered that a lot of the people he talked to there, the contacts that he was given, were in fact corrupt people and that he couldn't do anything with them. And as he's praying, God, I don't know what to do. Here I am in a strange land with strange people. And, and you have to understand that the second language in Burundi is not English, it's French. Dennis does not speak a lick of French. 
What Dennis didn't know is that about the same time that God was moving in his heart to go to Burundi, God was moving in, the, in, a, in another man's life. His name is Delson. Delson is a Burundian who left the country because of the genocide. There, I think almost a million uh, Burundians were, were killed because of the genocide, and Delson wanted no part of this country anymore. In fact, he'd gone to, I think, Zambia, and, uh, and God told him to go back. And Delson said, but Lord, Why? And God, how many know that asking God why is, is, is usually fruitless? <laughs> There's no point in asking God why. But he, he went because God told him to do it. What neither Delson or Dennis understood at that time is that there were a lot of people crying out to God for help. God, help us. And so what happens next is we see the beautiful choreography of the Spirit. We see the supply of the Holy Spirit. And someone says, oh, we just met a guy that just arrived here in town. His name is Delson. Do you want to meet him? And Dennis said, we've got nothing to lose. Why not? Dennis and Delson were brought together by chance. How many know there's no such thing as chance with God? No such thing as coincidence. God brought these two together, and the next thing you know, there was a confirmation in their spirit that, that they were to work together, and we established the very first Village of Hope in Buiza with just a handful of kids. Maybe, I think, maybe eight or 12, something like that. Today, we've got over 500 kids. Over 500 kids. And not just that, folks. Listen, we've got, we've got 500 kids in Burundi, but, but a few years after Dennis came here, he said, well, why don't you come over to Burundi and see what's going on there? And I said, I would be happy to go, but I don't want to just be a sightseer. I want to serve God when I get there. And so I said, why don't we have a pastor's conference for, uh, for three days? And so we put on a pastor's conference, and we pulled these pastors together. And long, very, very, very long story, just very long. <laughs> the pastor said, we want to be connected with you. And so right, right then, right that, during those two weeks, Cross Church Burundi was born. And we've been helping our churches there, and we've been planting churches there. Again, the choreography, the supply of the Holy Spirit. And now we are planting our 51st church. Folks, this is the power of God. If you ever are tempted to think your prayer is not working, that your prayer is in vain, remember this message. Remember what the Apostle Paul says. I know that I can do the great work that God's calling me to do because of your prayers and because your prayers are helping to supply the spirit of Jesus Christ to all that I do. When you pray for me, and I, I'm, I'm, I know some of you pray for me every day, and I'm, I'm gonna be greedy right now, and I'm gonna ask all of you to pray for me every day. Pray for your pastor every day. Pray that God would supply me an extra dose of the Holy Spirit, amen? amen. I didn't hear everybody say amen, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna hope that some of you are saying it under your breath. You know, sometimes Janet will ask, what do you want me to do? What do you want us to do? And I'll say, let me pray and think about it first. You ask her, that's what I say every single time. Why? Because whatever we do has to be in the power of the Holy Spirit. It has to be according to the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's got to, we need the help and the supply of the Holy Spirit. And that's what you need in your family. And maybe that's why you got problems right now. It's because you're getting ahead of God or, or, or you're avoiding God. You're not even asking God for, your, for his help. 
What are the results of this prayer? Well, Paul says, uh, he says that I'm, I'm going to experience deliverance. And we know that from the time that Paul wrote this letter to the time that he died, he, he had another th- at least another three years of very fruitful ministry. And so he, he's delivered and able to do his ministry. What's more, he says, he says that this will turn for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. He's asking that he would have this confident assurance. This word hope, by the way, in English, when we say hope, it's like I'm hoping. I cross my fingers that maybe that this will probably and maybe hope. We're not talking about maybes. There's no crossing of the fingers. The hope that the Bible speaks about is a confidence assurance that this is going to happen beyond a shadow of a doubt. And this is what Paul is saying. Your prayer for me, which gives me that confident assurance that I will remain true to the work that God's called me to do. I've heard, I, I know of so many pastors who have written books and then have experienced terrible moral failing afterward. Think of Bill Hybels, pastor of one of the biggest churches in, in the USA, one of the biggest churches in the world. And uh, some of you may know this, but he had to step down from ministry because of his moral infidelities. Folks, while he was going through and 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 going through this, this moral failure, he wrote a book called Who Are You When Nobody's Looking? And it was all about integrity, Christian integrity. And virtually all his books have been removed from every Christian bookstore, every Christian book site. We're talking about dozens of books that he's written that now are worth nothing. Well, folks, listen, you can't be a Christian in your own strength. You cannot follow Christ and do the will of God in your own power, in your own st- under your own steam. You need the power of Almighty God, and it comes through prayer. It comes through faithfulness in prayer. And then Paul says, "I need to be. I need to have that courage, full courage, to always glorify God." Last week we told we talked about the fact that we are called, every one of us, the chief purpose of every human, the main purpose of every human on this planet. Contrary to what Rick Warren says, the true purpose of every Christian is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is what Paul is saying here. I need the courage that Christ will be honored in my body, whether I live or die. I want Christ to be glorified. It's a very different way of praying. The way we pray nowadays is a very modern approach to prayer. But we need to go back and find out what the, what the early Christians did. We need to pray that, you need to pray for your pastor, whether he lives or dies, that his life will bring honor to Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? And that's what you need to pray for each other, what you need to pray for yourselves. So, what is Paul's, how, how is it that Paul is able to see the way he sees? I'm going to tell you. It's because of his worldview. What is Paul's worldview? He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, you're not going to hear any TV preacher say that nowadays. Nobody, nobody's going to ever say that. But what's Paul saying? He says, I know that this world's not my home. I know that I'm a stranger passing through this world. I'm an alien here. That's actually what it says in the Greek. We're aliens. Christians are aliens on this planet. 
We're here for a short time, and then we are off for an eternity with Jesus Christ. So Paul says, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, either way, I win. How many understand that? If you have that kind of a worldview, people, now suddenly you don't care what people think about you. You don't care what people say about you. You have only one desire, and that is to please Jesus Christ every time. And that's his worldview. I'm living for Christ, and if I die, again, it's going to be for Christ. He says in verse 22, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means faithful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. He said, I'm not sure whether I should live or die. Then he says, but I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. You know, one of the wonderful things about my grandparents is they were constantly talking about dying. My grandma would say, I can hardly wait to die and go to be with Jesus. I'm tired of this old world. I'm ready to go home. She's just constantly saying that. I said, Grandma, where are you going? But to be with Jesus. I want to go home. I'm done with this old world. You see, this is a worldview that gives you confidence and peace and joy. So many have the worldview of this world. And it's all about you. But for the Apostle Paul, it's not about him. It's all about the Philippians, it's about the Galatians and the Colossians and the Corinthians and Philemon and Titus and Timothy and all the believers everywhere. He was living not for himself, he was living for others. And so this is what he says. He says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So Paul is saying this, even though I want to go to heaven, I'm, I'm willing to stay for you. That's really what he's saying. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Folks, a Christian worldview says this world is not my home. You understand that you're an alien here. You do not get caught up in the things of this world. The things of this world have no appeal to you or shouldn't have an appeal to you. And if it does have an appeal to you, you need to run to Jesus and say, God, cleanse my heart of this unrighteousness and help me to see that my home is with you. This is why Jesus says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust and robber will get at it, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Why? Because someday, my friends, you and I are going to stand before Jesus Christ and we're going to have to give an account. And, did, and the question is this, did you bring glory to God or did you live for yourself? You say, Pastor Allen, what exactly does it mean again to bring glory to Christ? Jesus puts it like this, live your life in such a way that you live in a way that it causes people around you to praise your Father in heaven. Is that how you're living your life? Does your life cause others to glorify God? That's what it means to be a Christian. You're living in a way, as aliens on this earth, as agents that come from God, as ambassadors from the holy courts of heaven, are you causing people to look to God? Folks, this is... This is what Cross Church is about. This is the gospel we preach here at Cross Church. It's who we are. We live to bring glory to God. And this is what the Apostle Paul says, I'd rather die, but for your sake, I'm gonna keep living and pointing you to Jesus. Let's stand together, shall we?
Father, we want to be a people that live the spirit-controlled life. To be spirit-controlled means that we are constantly being filled with the spirit and controlled by the spirit so that we would bring glory to your name that we would be causing our friends at school to turn to Jesus, that we'd be causing the people at work to turn to Jesus, that we'd be causing our children who look at us to turn to Jesus. Our neighbors would turn to Jesus because they see the light of Christ in us. Oh God, we pray, forgive us for trying to live this Christian life in our own strength and our own power. Help us, we pray, O oh God, to be found faithful in living a spirit-led, spirit-filled life. Fill us afresh, O oh God, that we may go from this place as your agents, as missionaries who have the good word, the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray for Christ's sake. And everyone said it with me? Amen. 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 Tell the person beside you, go spread the gospel.